Is your heart ever faint? I don't mean have you literally fainted. Hopefully not, but if you have, um, it doesn't appear that anyone's in that condition at the moment. But, but your heart is faint. Your, your, your heart, the internal part of you, is discouraged, downcast, weak, needing help. That's the circumstance that this particular psalm speaks to. So, he starts out, and he says, Hear my cry, O God, and give heed to my prayer. We don't necessarily always talk that way. When he says give heed, what does he mean? Listen, pay attention, respond, uh, accept my prayer. And then he says, from the end of the earth. And um, it's interesting how different people have taken that phrase, from the end of the earth. What do you think are a couple of the ways that people might take it when he says, from the end of the earth I call to you? What are some possibilities of his circumstances when he says that? Okay. So, more of the figurative sense, it feels like I'm far away from everything. What's another possibility? Okay, Paul's point. Yeah, that, that he is actually far away. So some people have taken that literally like this is a king, David or another king, writing this psalm, and he's actually like way over on the borders and feels far away from God, as in the city, Jerusalem, where God's at, and all those sorts of things. Or uh, more the idea that is just an, an, an overwhelming sense of uh, loneliness and all of those sorts of things. And I think that most likely... It's being used more in the figurative sense, but the bottom line is, I don't think the phrase itself tells us one way or the other. So it's one of those two, but regardless of which it is, if it is physically you are far away from the gathering of God's people, or figuratively you feel like you are far away, which is our more common experience, because we're most of us regularly here, it's not like we're usually far away for a long period of time, but in either circumstance, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to call to God when our heart is faint or discouraged or cast down. It's interesting that he doesn't say in the second phrase of verse 2, make me feel better about my situation. What does he say? Lead me to the rock. Who is God? Uh, when we say, lead me to the rock that's higher than I, he clearly is talking about God. We have sort of the idea that has come up from time to time in church history that this is something that we are waiting on God to do. And we don't usually think that way. We usually think that our relationship with God is more like a vending machine, right? Right? You put in what you're supposed to put in, and out comes what you're supposed to get, right? If you had a, a vending machine that you put $2 in because you're really thirsty and it's a hot day and you wanted a bottle of Gatorade or whatever, um, and then nothing came out, what would your attitude be toward it? Yeah, Kick it and see if something comes out, right? It would not be a good vending machine. But God isn't a vending machine. And so there's a sense in which the psalmist is having to wait for God's work of renewing, leading, correcting his heart back toward God. And then he talks about 
how God has been up to this point. A refuge, a tower of strength against the enemy. Um, if David is the psalmist, as the inscription would indicate, in what ways was God a refuge for David? Just throughout his life, because we don't have a particular time period that this psalm is fixed to. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Even later on, from Absalom and from others who tried to overthrow him, right? Uh, so God has been his refuge and a tower against the enemy. And David would have been well familiar with this idea of there being a tower, a place to hide, a rock of refuge. I mean, David's hiding in caves and in spots in the wilderness and all those sorts of things. And when you're running for your life, you don't want to be caught in an open field. You want a stone wall at your back and a place to escape to if you need to, right? And so, I mean, this is the kind of imagery that I think is going through his mind. And then he says in verse 4, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So two different pictures. Dwelling in your tent, uh, for us, probably calls up the imagery of camping or something like that. But for David, what tent did he probably have in mind? Well, the temple wouldn't have been built yet, but yeah, the tabernacle, the place where God dwells, right? Um, and so he's basically saying, God, I want to be in your presence, right? Now, we could say it's tent in the sense of a home, but since he's talking to God, I think he probably has the tabernacle in mind. And this image of let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, what's that a picture of? Yeah, a hen, an eagle, any kind of bird sort of rests there, protects her young under her wings. They're safe, they're warm, they're sheltered. That's the picture in David's mind of God's tender care for his people. So, we have the cry and the prayer, and then we, we have uh, that sort of in verses 1 and 2 and verse 4. The reason is kind of given in verse 3. And then he picks up again in verse 5, For you have heard my vows, O God. And uh, a lot of people would take this as being connected with the prayer in verse 1. So give heed to my prayer. If God hears his vows, what has God probably also done? Heard his prayer, right? And so those two things would be connected. Uh, along the lines of the idea of vows, I just wanted us to glance quickly at a couple of passages here. Uh, turn over to the passage in Ecclesiastes. Should just be a little ways over there. Someone want to read for us verses uh, 1 through 7? Uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes 5.
I do six as well if you do this. So I think the experience of the Israelites was different from ours when it comes to this idea of vows. I mean, we tend to think like marriage vows and possibly like taking an oath in the context of church, uh, church court. <laughs> um, and in their day, they would have made vows about a variety of things. For example, they could have promised to God a particular portion of their flocks, herds, grain, all those sorts of things, for a variety of reasons, as sort of laid out in the Law of Moses. And the expectation was, having made that promise, that they would fulfill it. Um, there are other examples of vows. You have the example in Judges 11, Jephthah's vow, a lot of dispute about that. I'm not going to go into that at the moment, but that's an example of a vow. You have Psalm 15:4, where there's this idea of the, the, the wise man, the righteous man, swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. He's faithful to the vow, the promise that he's made. Uh, we even see Paul in the New Testament in connection with the vow. He shaves his head, pays a particular price at the temple and, uh, or at the synagogue and, and, and takes care of that. And then later at the temple, he pays the fees associated with the fulfillment of a vow for the four men in an attempt to... Uh, to some extent changed the Jews' attitude toward him. It's not successful, but we see him complying with the law in that way. The reason I mention that in terms of the differences between them and us is because we might read something like this and we might take it as just like, yeah, we should keep our promises. And in light of the last passage there on your sheet, Matthew 5, 33-37, honesty should characterize our lives. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But there is a sense in which there is a connection between the relationship of God and His people and sort of a two-way street. God's faithfulness to His people, God's people's faithfulness to their God that we see in this passage that I don't think we necessarily think a whole lot about because we don't necessarily do this sort of making and keeping of vows on a regular basis. And I'm not saying that we should, in light of Jesus' words, uh, kind of like how, I was just talking with the kids in the Bible class today about this, kind of how the tithe in the Old Testament, the 10 to 23% that they were required to give, was a more of an obligation than an, a, a voluntary thing. And some of them took the attitude, as long as I check this box off, God's happy with me, I'm given what I've owed God. And the New Testament opens up to this perspective of, all of this is God's, what are you going to give back to Him? In the same way, I vowed something to God. Here's a promise I'm going to keep. Jesus comes here in the New Testament and says, everything you say ought to be true. Not just the things you vowed, not just the, the promises that you've made invoking God's name. And so, in connection with that, the psalmist has cried to God. God has heard his vows, his prayer, and the fact that his prayer has been answered, the prayer to lead him to a rock higher than him, the idea of letting him take refuge, it seems that he makes a vow in connection with that prayer and God has answered the prayer, so now the psalmist is in a place where he is both able and obligated to keep the thing that he's promised to give to God. What has God given to him? How has God answered the prayer? It says, you have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. 
In the Old Testament, what did inheritance look like? Land, animals, possessions. For the Israelites, specifically, it was a portion in the land of Canaan and then the land of Israel, right? Um, it was things passed down from forefathers from one to the next. What does our inheritance look like in connection with the church? Thinking especially like what it says in the book of Ephesians. What's our inheritance? It says the Holy Spirit's a down payment of our inheritance. What's that inheritance look like for us? Dwelling with God. Which, interestingly enough, was the promise that God made to the Israelites, right? You're going to dwell in the land, and I will dwell with you, and you will dwell with me. So they're very closely related, and sometimes we get kind of... Um, we get worked up and, and make a too harsh of a distinction between what the Israelites experience and what we'll experience because we think of heaven as like a um, we think of heaven in terms of like clouds instead of like a rock and so a rock is something that you can see and feel and touch but heaven is like this fuzzy ethereal thing over here so this is a physical promise and that's not a physical promise but what's God going to create in the end times? New heaven and new earth, like a physical place in which spiritual realities come true in a way they never have before, or in a, in a perfect fulfillment. Um, so, in connection with that, the inheritance that David has in mind is this possession in the land, things passed down from forefathers, God keeping his promises to his people. We have that same sense, but we also see all of what God is doing perhaps more clearly because we've seen all these things that have been revealed in connection with Christ and promises that have been laid out in the epistles in the New Testament. Verse 6, you will prolong the king's life, his years will be as many generations. For the Old Testament saint, what was one of the signs of God's favor? God's blessing was on you. What was one of the signs of that? Long life. Again, for us, what is it we look forward to? Eternal life. Not just an extended life, but an everlasting life. And so again, uh, the two things are closely related, but it's sort of like here's the shadow and here's the reality, which we ourselves haven't quite reached yet either, but God has revealed more about what he's doing there. But in, for the king, a sign of a good and godly king was that he had a long reign, God was with him, his enemies didn't attack him, disease didn't overtake him, all of those sorts of things. Verse 7, he will abide before God forever. And it's possible that that phrase could be uh, translated, he will ever abide before God. It depends somewhat on if we're putting the stress on he's going to continually abide before God or he's going to abide before God for like without end. And um, as I understand it, the text could be taken either way, but the idea is he's in God's presence, right? And even if he's only looking at it as for the duration of his reign, he's abiding in God's presence, we know from what God has revealed in the New Testament and through the prophets and so forth later in the Old Testament, what we have to look forward to is an abiding in God's presence that has no end. And then he says in verse 7, a point loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. How is the phrase loving kindness and truth used in the Old Testament? 
Yeah. So when he says appoint loving kindness and truth, he's saying, God, preserve him, right? Because God is described in Exodus and in other places in terms of this phrase, loving kindness and truth. Loving loyalty, truth and faithfulness to his promises. Like those two ideas occur together often, but, but even separately many times in connection with God and who he is. And so this might seem like it's disconnected from the first part of the psalm, but it's very closely connected to it. And then the response, verse 8, as in many of these psalms that express uh, a calling out to God and a confidence in God's answering, so I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may pay my vows, or as I pay my vows, day by day. And so the picture that we have in this psalm is that one who is a faithful servant of God cries out to God in the midst of affliction. God hears his cry. The things that he's promised to God, he fulfills. God has shown his faithfulness by delivering him and by preserving him and making it possible for him to keep the promises that he's making to God. And so we have this idea of faithfulness from God's servant to God, from God to his servant, specifically the king, but by broader application, God's people, and by even broader application today, to us as God's people, there is this reality that God hears and preserves his people, but also requires, expects, demands, and makes possible faithfulness from his people. So by way of application, should we make vows like it talks about in verse 5 and 8? Or what does that faithfulness look like today for us as God's people? Okay. Definitely where it starts. What did Jesus say about if we love him? Obey him, keep his commandments. And this, I think, is the picture of perseverance that we have laid out for us in the New Testament. We're supposed to continue in faith. It's not possible for us to continue in faith without God upholding us and empowering it and having begun the process and seeing it through, like Philippians 1 6 talks about. It's also not possible for us to persevere in faith. If I come over here and I sit down, I'm like, well, I hope God makes me persevere in faith. We're not following the spirit of this psalm, which is that there's an ongoing relationship to God where we cry out to him in the midst of difficulty and we ask for his help and we see his character and we see him working in our lives. And, and it's not as though God needs us to cooperate with him in order to accomplish it. And yet God causes us to cooperate with him in the accomplishing of what he's doing in our lives and going on and on throughout life. And so I think the main point of this psalm is this idea of faithfulness. Crying out to God in times of difficulty. When my heart is faint, call out to God. But that call comes out of the context of an ongoing relationship between a faithful God and his faithful people. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would see that you are faithful and that we would be faithful to you as our God. We pray this.